Corn seed has some really great properties. There's carbohydrates and enzyme inhibitors in the corn seed that really help stabilize that protein. And that stabilization takes place not only when it's being eaten and it helps it pass through the stomach to get to the gut, but also in processing. And so it's really a lovely matrix for a controlled release of protein and oral delivery. This is just corn. So we're not really disrupting the systems that the producer uses. We're not disrupting the digestive tract of the animal. We're just dosing something that elicits an immune response. Welcome to Fall Nine Field Notes, a podcast that explores the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien. And Clay Mitchell. Today's guest is Jenny Philby, the CEO of Mason Animal Health, a biotech company transforming corn seed into the future of animal vaccines. She earned her PhD in physical chemistry and has worked for a range of large and startup biotech companies as the VP of business development. But her passion for startups led her to explore more in the developing technology world of physical chemistry. In our conversation, we explore the processes for developing a new vaccine, what the procedures are for taking a food-based vaccination to market, and the science behind using corn for protein delivery, initially in pigs and in many other animals. How Jenny leads the team at Mason to overcome challenges along the way is another topic of conversation. And we begin our interview with Jenny sharing the themes of her career and how her work in protein delivery led to joining the scientific team at Mason. There's some themes that run through my career. I've always worked on new technologies and very early on moved into protein delivery. And so whether it was for large companies or startups, was very much interested in how can we deliver proteins initially to man and then eventually to animals in a way that's new and exciting and different. So really driven by changing the status quo. So worked at all different kinds of companies, but I fell in love with the startup, just the opportunity to do the impossible. And this has really been a lot of fun. So I met the scientific founder of Mason while I was running a consulting company. And he had this really cool technology where he expressed uh, proteins in corn seed and he was going after human vaccines, which is, you know, a noble cause. But I kept saying to him, you know, where this would really fit is in animal health. They have all kinds of challenges today. And, you know, injecting every individual animal is either a real pain or impossible. And a technology where you could actually feed corn and vaccinate an animal or treat an animal for a disease, that's amazing. So eventually, I think he got tired of hearing me talk about it. And he said, well, then why don't you go do it? And i have been running a consulting company, helping emerging companies commercialize their assets for almost 10 years. And I was missing that ownership piece, that real ability, not only to to see a product succeed, but to really be a part of it. And so I said, okay, let's do it. And we formed Mason and we've been off to the races. It's been a, a long road to hoe, as they say in the ag world, but uh, we really have some tremendous traction now and it's a lot of fun. That's terrific. And before we dive into the specifics of what Mason is doing, I want to double click on a comment that you made just around the concept of protein delivery. I think it would be really helpful if we took a step back and you could just frame for us what that means and maybe a couple of examples from your prior career history that illustrate innovation in that and what it can potentially enable. 
Well, sure, sure. So the holy grail has really been oral protein delivery. I mean, our bodies are made to digest protein. That's how we get our, you know, amino acids, et cetera. But the ability to actually take a protein pill and have it deliver medicine instead of injecting is something that many companies have been trying to do. And so, of course, I took a run at it a couple of times with oral insulin. Was not successful, but certainly learned a lot along the way. And now there's actually some oral peptides out there. If you follow the movie stars, there's all kinds of weight loss drugs out there, and they're all peptides. And so they are figuring this out, at least with smaller biological molecules, primarily with formulation. But the ability to replace the needle with something, particularly if we move into vaccines and you're trying to immunize the mucosal system instead of the systemic system, and you can do that by feeding a vaccine, you really open up the ability to treat diseases in a whole new way. And if you can do that through the power of plants, you then even make biological molecules accessible, whereas previously maybe they weren't because of cost of goods considerations. But yeah, oral protein delivery has always been exciting. I actually, I worked at Nectar Therapeutics where there we are pegylating proteins to make them last longer. So they were injectable, but instead of having an injection every day, you now could have an injection once a week or once a month. And actually did the first product license deal with Baxter and that product made it to market, pegylated factor eight for hemophilia. So ways to really help biological molecules be more bioactive in the body. And it's really the beauty of biotechnology is to make accessible to whether it's man or animals, molecules that are needed for survival or disease prevention. Terrific. Thank you for that. And that is, I think, a good jumping off point now to talk a little bit more specifically about what you are doing at Mason and what specific conditions, applications you're addressing. Yeah. So at Mason, we're using the power of plants, specifically corn, to produce orally delivered biologics. And so our first products are really focused in on creating vaccines that can be fed to animals like pigs and chickens instead of either being injected or sprayed or the chicken eggs being injected. This is a way to really help the animal producer prevent disease. Disease prevention in turn helps that animal producer use less antibiotics. And that has been a goal of our community for a long time because broad use of antibiotics creates antibiotic resistance, and then that impacts the human population. So if we can create more healthy animals by preventing disease with easy-to-use vaccines, then we accomplish a whole lot of goals for the animal producer, making protein more sustainably and creating even more protein to feed the population. I remember when we were doing due diligence on the investment opportunity in Mason. This is an area of animal health is not an area that we have typically invested in in the past at Fall Line. And part of the reason that we wanted to have you as a guest was to you know, explain to our audience what is different about the animal ag industry versus what we would see in the 
more conventional ag tech space as we've invested over the years. But one of the things that I recall from our diligence process was just understanding what the current state of affairs is with respect to vaccinating animals and learning that indeed in these massive hog feeding operations that for certain indications, you have workers running around with hypodermic needles injecting hundreds of thousands, up to millions of pigs. And then learning further that, you know, as you can imagine, oftentimes these hypodermic needles will break in the animal. And that led to a supply chain issue where then all hogs have to be x-rayed prior to the meat being processed because of the liability of potentially finding a needle in your pork chop. So this is not just a conceptual problem. This is a practical, physical, worker safety problem in addition to being an animal health problem. And maybe just to illustrate that a little bit further, can you talk a little bit about the particular disease that you are currently addressing with your first product that you expect to take to market? Sure. So it's a diarrheal disease that impacts baby pigs. It's called porcine epidemic diarrhea virus, or for short, PEDV. And this typically impacts a barn when the pigs are between three and five days old. And in sow farms, they will try to synchronize them so that, you know, a barn is having baby pigs all at the same time. If PED hits that barn, they lose every pig in that barn. And it's a huge loss. And if you think about it, they've fed those pigs, those sows for four months. And so all of that food is basically gone to waste. And then you have the issues of disposals and, you know, a lot of loss of pigs that never grow up. So what we've done is created a vaccine that can be fed to the sows while they are pregnant. And it's not a continuous feed. They just get a couple doses during their gestation. And then through the nursing that takes place when those baby pigs are, you know, a day old, two days old, provides protection against the disease. And we've actually just had a very successful efficacy study and you can really see the difference in the health and survivability of these baby pigs from the moms, from the sows that were vaccinated compared to the controls. And so we're basically vaccinating the sows to protect the baby pigs. So it was a heavy lift. There's only two vaccines out in the market, neither of which have a full approval, a full license, because they haven't met the efficacy requirements. And so we are quite excited to move this one forward through the regulatory pathway. Yeah, this one struck us as a particularly high leverage approach where you only dose the sows and through the nursing process, through the colostrum itself, you're providing immunity to the piglets. When we think about you know, the economics of that business without getting into you know, specific pricing, how do they think about the economics and impact of a vaccine like this relative to how prevalent are these losses? What's the value of providing protection for PEDV? Yeah, so there's pockets in the United States that are more, let's say, hot beds of PED than others. And certainly right now in the Northwest and into Canada, there's a problem with PED. And so in those areas, we anticipate that we will see broad utilization very often what we hear from producers is that if their barn gets impacted, then their sows are probably good for the next year or so until they get enough turnover 
to then they're vulnerable again. But with the data we have, we believe we'll not only see utilization in these areas where they have a problem, but in some other areas just for prevention. Because like you said, you don't need the crew to come through. There's no biosecurity risk. The animals don't even know they're being vaccinated. And we can come in at a price point that's super competitive to what they would have paid. And so the value is there to minimize risk. And when it goes through a barn, it's really hard to get it out. And so you have the chance of reinfection. And so we can really, I mean, they're talking now about, can we eliminate PED? And can you imagine if our product enabled long-term elimination of a disease? That could be exciting. You could say, oh, well, you don't sell product anymore, but we got a whole portfolio behind us. And to be able to eliminate a disease, now that's really changing the world. So there's a lot of excitement right now on our team to make a big impact. Let's talk a little bit about the regulatory environment for this. I'm sure it's crossing some audience members' minds. Well, you know, this is not naturally occurring corn that is producing this vaccine. So you must be modifying it somehow. Talk about the nature of the change that you're making to the corn plant to produce this vaccine. And then how is that regulated? And how do we think about you know, controlling that mutation, if you will, or the change to the corn plant from finding its way into the natural world, which is a lot of people's concerns around these kinds of technologies. Right. Well, the good news is there are some really clear rules and regulations around how to control it that were put in place because of maybe some releases years ago. And so it's very clear what the rules are that need to be followed. And it's also very doable. So basically what we're doing, like you said, is we're using bioengineering to tell that corn plant to put a particular protein into the seed and a particular spot in the seed to make that protein, which then when eaten by the animal, creates immunity either for that animal or that animal's offspring, depending on the disease. And so there are regulations around how that seed is handled and how it's grown. So we need to have permits from the USDA to move that seed anywhere. Like, you know, you can't just pop it in an envelope and mail it somewhere. You have to have permits that really specifically list out what locations across the country that seed will be. There's permits for transporting. There's permits for planting. You have to tell the USDA when you're getting ready to plant, they come observe. And then there's also limitations on where it can be planted. So we need to have a mile around our corn plants where no other corn is grown. Now, the good news about corn is there's no cross-fertilization with any other plant. So it's not like it can you know, cause grass to make that protein. Corn only replicates with itself. So that's why there's this rule of a mile around our fields. And so that's why we don't grow in the corn belt right now. <laughs> and then for transporting, it needs to be triple contained. And then we have to really account for where all of our material is and where it goes. And so until it is devitalized, which means it's ground up into the final product, we really need to make sure we know where it is. Our final product, though, it looks like cornmeal, right? And so it's ground up, 
to the right potency, and then it's packaged in a format that the producer wants to use it, and it's sold as a certain number of doses. So just like that producer would buy a vial that had a certain number of doses for them to put a syringe in and inject animals, we will have a bag of cornmeal that will have a certain number of doses that will then be dosed to the herd. Jenny, I was wondering if you could give us a sense of scale here, how kind of the field production translates into doses. So kind of what percentage by mass is the corn carrying the active ingredient? How many you know, doses per acre are you producing and so on? Yeah, so that really depends upon the disease and the species. So a sow eats a lot right? So you're going to have fewer doses per acre because they're going to eat more. You know, they're probably, let's say, eating a cup for a dose, whereas a chicken is going to be eating, you know, a teaspoon (laughs) for a dose. So when you're talking about, you know, things like chickens, we're up in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of doses an acre. And, you know, for sows, we're, let's say, 100,000 doses per acre. So, you know, it depends upon the disease, the potency, and the volume. So then you might wonder, well, how many acres do you need to plant? And so as we begin to scale up, you know, we're planting, you know, 100 acres this year. You know, next year we'll probably be closer to 500 to 1,000. Eventually we'll be needing tens of thousands of acres per year, but we definitely feel like with colleagues at Fall Line and some others, we can definitely lease and acquire the rights to grow the corn that we need. That's not, when we're talking about growing corn, that's not that many acres, really. No, it's not. And the choice of corn as the crop, is it primarily because of corn's characteristic as an animal feed, or is it ideally suited for producing proteins? Yeah, it's a great question because so many people are like, oh, why corn? Can't you do it in another seed, right? Corn has such a reputation, but corn seed has some really great properties. There's carbohydrates and enzyme inhibitors in the corn seed that really help stabilize that protein. And that stabilization takes place not only when it's being eaten and it helps it pass through the stomach to get to the gut, but also in processing. And so it's really a lovely matrix for a controlled release of protein and oral delivery. This is just corn. So we're not really disrupting the systems that the producer uses. We're not disrupting the digestive tract of the animal. We're just dosing something that elicits an immune response. You're doing something that we would deem in the abstract molecular farming. And Clay, I don't know, for the benefit of our audience, it might make sense for you to give a perspective on how we view what molecular farming is and the thesis behind that. And I'd love to get Jenny's reactions to that. Yeah, I think one reason why molecular farming excites us is that if we think about alternatives of creating pharmaceuticals or other molecules synthetically or through fermentation, you know, there's some energy requirements, some feedstock necessary. And, you know, it's very efficient for that to be produced directly in a plant where, you know, you've got photosynthesis, you know, capturing sunlight, and then that being used directly for creating protein. So it's a way to create massive scale. We've got a food and plant production system here in the United States that allows us to scale up much more readily and to a lot greater extent than what you can do through production systems, bioreactors that are used for other production means. Yeah, there's been billions of dollars of investment made 
by large companies with these fermenters and, you know, just think about the energy requirements to keep the buildings cold and the water to clean. And there's a whole lot of energy required to produce in clean rooms, cold fill finish, cold storage. And I'm biased because, of course, I'm doing molecular farming, but basically we're using the sunshine to make our molecules. And, you know, we are growing, I think, responsibly with responsible use of water. We are looking for ways to minimize the amounts of insecticide we use, et cetera. So I think there are some really gains to be had in the environment and sustainability using molecular farming intelligently to produce products, whether it's vaccines or products for food safety or therapeutics to improve the health of animals. So there really are a number of dimensions. When we think about the sustainability and impact component of what you are doing, you could think about making these kinds of molecules through an industrial fermentation process, and that would carry with it significant energy costs, not to mention all of the then downstream delivery your requirements and costs associated with that. And and here we're effectively cutting out the middleman by making plants into our factories. And we avoid all of the packaging cost and formulation cost of taking a molecule and formulating it so they could be injected. You are then removing the actual physical injection side of this, so eliminating that step and all of the worker hazard associated with that. And then ultimately, we are improving animal welfare here by virtue of, you know, potentially eradicating disease, but at the very least, you know, preventing and substantially reducing it. Let's talk a bit about the business side of the company, maybe starting with regulatory and then moving into go-to-market. On the regulatory side, I think one of the things that we would like to understand or contrast with what we see from, let's say, crop protection companies, you've got a slightly different path. Talk a little bit about your process, because on the one hand, you have a plant that you are growing, and then ultimately that plant is then being delivered to an animal. So what does that regulatory process look like? Yes, I'll speak first to vaccines. It's in the USDA shop. So first, the plant side, it's regulated by the BRS, so the Biotechnology Regulatory Services. And they're the ones, as I spoke of, that you know we need to get permits that do inspections. And that organization is who makes the regulations that we follow. So then once that seed is delivered to our manufacturing facility and it's ground into cornmeal, We are now being overseen by the Center for Veterinary Biologics, the CVB, which is another division of the USDA. And there, there are really clear paths to get an animal vaccine approved. So we need a potency assay. We need an efficacy test. That protocol needs to be approved. And then we need a successful efficacy test where we meet our endpoints. We need a field safety study. They inspect our manufacturing facility. And then there's a lot of reports that are required. And so that process, it has all really been established by the CVB for many, many years. We're following that process. What's a little different is we're not making our vaccine in a large stainless steel vat. We're making it in corn. And so there's been a lot of education and learning along the way, but the basic process and procedures that need to be followed are already well established. And on our team, we have folks 
who have worked in the animal vaccine space their whole careers. So they bring to the team this knowledge of what's required to get an animal vaccine approved, learning you know, this new way to make the vaccines. So it's really a bringing together, if you will, of several regulatory agencies within the USDA. And as you get approval and look to go to market, What's the landscape look like for bringing a vaccine to market? Who are you selling to? Are you selling to big veterinary medicine companies? Are you selling to actual growers of animals? What does that look like? It might be useful to explain a little bit what the supply chain looks like around how do the feed mills work with the farmers and the veterinary companies? Yeah, so if you look at the particularly swine and poultry, it's a pretty concentrated marketplace. And so we are going directly to the customers. And these are the swine producers and then down the road, the poultry producers. So they're names that many people would recognize like Smithfield or Iowa Select or Mashoff on the swine side, Tyson and Purdue and others on the poultry side. And so, yeah, they do have their own feed mills, but we are selling to the producer. So the good news is when we talk to these producers, I've never had anyone tell me that oral vaccination is a dumb idea. I mean, everyone has always been like, wow, if you can do that, you give me a call, right? So there's always been this little skepticism like, yeah, like I haven't seen anyone able to do that. But if it's possible, we totally want that. So the good news is there is a whole lot of receptivity and interest in oral vaccination because of all the things we've talked about in terms of worker safety, just getting workers, right, and animal welfare, et cetera. And so from a supply chain or distribution perspective, we will be selling directly to our customers. We won't be going to the large, you know, animal pharma companies. We won't be going to distributors. We'll be going direct to our customer. And that, you know, I mean, a lot of times, you know, the distributors want a nice percentage. And so the ability in these two categories to go directly to a customer is very important. We touched on it indirectly when you talked about the corn production operation of the company. So planting acres, harvesting the corn, grinding it up, into finished product that takes a season long. You can get ahead of it by using North and South America. But I think that does probably expose some of the limitations of this mechanism for delivering vaccines. Can you talk a little bit about the types of diseases that are best suited for this, where we have a lead time, quite a long lead time to bringing a product to market? Yeah, so there is a lead time. The good news is the corn kernel itself is very stable. And so once you're up and going and you know you have a product that works, you can make a whole lot one year and not even make it the next year, grow it to be able to cycle crops through. So you've got a real stable product. Today, where the technology is, we're not really well suited for something that changes every season. So like human flu, right? Today, the technology isn't like that. But I can tell you, we've got some great scientists on our R&D team now. And just one example, something that was taken four months to do before our transformation scientists can get that answer in two days. 
And so, you know, like, wow. As we look into the future, is there a time when we as humans are ever uh, having a little corn tortilla that provides us with immunity to a disease? Oh, sure. They've worked already on COVID. They're looking right now at like nasal COVID. Well, why are they doing that? Because mucosal immunity is better than than systemic. And so actually the scientific founder has expressed COVID in corn and done some early mouse studies and shown some efficacy. So yeah, very possible. The pathway is longer than in animal health. You go through the FDA, there would be more testing required. There's different hurdles that you need to jump over to get a human vaccine approved. But the technology itself, yes, it will work in humans. Coming back to some of the business issues that maybe differentiate the plant health ag tech world and the animal health world, we didn't touch on funding. And there, I think, is a, our observation, more limited world of investors active in this space. I'm curious if you can give us a little perspective on your fundraising journey and any reflections on you know, availability of capital for animal ag companies. It was not easy in those early years at all. And typically, you would talk to folks and they would totally get the plant side of the equation, but they were scared to death of that animal regulatory. Or, yeah, they understand animal regulatory, but they weren't really sure how in the world we were going to make this vaccine at a commercial scale. And, you know, there unfortunately have not been a of successful animal health startups. So that wasn't helping us either. And so in the beginning, you know, we cobbled together, hobbled through with some grants and some, you know, angel funding, which, you know, you're so thankful for now just as much as you were in the beginning because it's gotten us where we needed to be, but it was slow. And then I went to Iowa. And I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but you can't throw a rock without hitting somebody that grew up on a pig farm and grew corn to feed the pigs. All of the sudden, it was like, you know, I had gone to heaven. People understood what I was talking about. Yeah, could you say that again uh, a couple more times, Jenny? Yeah, I concur. It is heavenly and there's corn everywhere. They all understood, you know, Yeah, it's growing corn. We know about growing corn. It's not that hard. It's hard work, but it's not this super science to grow corn. And suddenly people understood. And so I was so blessed and so lucky to have visited in February and early March of 2020. Actually, the day I landed, the world shut down from COVID. But I had had enough meetings in February and March that I was able to continue on Zoom. And we signed a collaboration deal with Kent Corporation. And in January 2021, we signed 2 million seed round. And that really enabled us to hire a veterinarian who has developed a ton of animal vaccines, a lead regulatory person who had so much experience in getting products through the CVB. And that together with a collaboration with Kent Corporation really got us off and going, got us some data that we needed to then really bring in real money like Fall Line Capital 
And people have come with far more than just a checkbook, right? We all need money, but we need so much more. We need support. We need, you know, counsel. We need introductions, relationships, education, and the investors both in our series seed and our series A have brought that to the table. And that has just really springboarded us forward. That's great. Last topic I want to cover before we sign off here is around dealing with challenges and the path to success, the path to approvals, in the regulatory process is not always linear. Tell us a little bit about, and I'll just preview it. We went for an efficacy study and that trial did not come back positively. Tell us a little bit about sort of what was going through your head when that news came across. And I think importantly, how you dealt with it and how you got the team and the board, investors, everyone sort of reoriented around what we would do from there. Yeah, so if there was good news out of that trial, it was that it was a total bomb, okay? <laughs> and so, I mean, it completely failed. The controls and the vaccinates were exactly the same. So the reason I say that was good news is clearly something happened to the vaccine. We did something to kill it. Right. And then it was all hands on deck to figure out what went wrong and go back and look at what did we learn from the earlier studies and in-depth investigation. And by this time, we had some of our science team in-house. And so they really brought a lot of good science to bear. And we figured it out. And now I can say we figured it out because we've had a successful efficacy study. And so I think it's saying to the team, this is an incredible disappointment. We will learn a whole lot figuring out what went wrong. And we did. And so it made us all stronger. I was very pleased with how everyone handled it. Sure. Were we disappointed? Hell yeah. But we learned a lot. You know, I think we worked together to solve the problem and it does make success even sweeter. The other thing is that the moment I knew it failed, I got on the phone and let the board and our collaborator know immediately. You don't sit on bad information like this. And you could say, we don't know why, but it failed and we're going to figure it out and then we'll tell you what we're doing. I admired the speed with which you communicated with us when that bad news came. There was no delay. And I think there was a real openness in we don't know but we are going to go figure it out. I appreciated the fact that you really reoriented the team around, this is our top priority right now. Nothing else matters. We must figure out what went wrong and then we can put the pieces back together. So I think the lesson here that I think is most useful to other entrepreneurs is making decisions around burn earlier rather than hoping that you will have something else go your way. We realized very quickly that we were going to have a setback in timing. And your best opportunity to extend runway is to make burn reduction decisions while you still have a larger cash balance. And the longer you wait to adjust that, the less there is degrees of freedom to save and to buy more runway. And the company's ability and your leadership around 
reorienting the plan, reducing the burn, and buying ourselves time to be able to get to a second efficacy trial, and then all of the other pieces that need to be in place to then go raise another round. That was critical. And I think that is you know, exactly where we are at the moment, that, that all of those efforts to not only reduce burn, but to find other ways to raise capital and extend our runway. I admire that and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And we continue to have our eye very closely on cash because that runway is so important to us being successful. Well, Jenny, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Jenny. Well, thank you. It was great to talk with you. 